invite you to take your Bibles this morning and open to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. And we're going to have part two of our message that we began last week. Uh, the uh, pastor I served on, I can't remember if I mentioned this last week, uh, but he was notorious for doing this. He would have a passage that he was going to preach through. And inevitably, it was always, well, this is going to be part one of the message, and next week will be part two. And so I texted him this past week and said, guess what? I finally have come to that point where I'm like you in that. <laughs> and uh, we had a good laugh about that. Uh, but Mark chapter 13, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 23, and particularly, uh, I believe, verses 14 through um, uh, 23, excuse me, yeah, 14 uh, through 23, uh, the second half of this passage here. And as you make your way there, it's on page 849 in the Pew Bible. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here and to worship you. And as we've sung, Lord, you are a holy God. Lord, our sin separates us from you. And our sin, Lord, deserves punishment. We deserve to be in hell. But yet through your grace and mercy, Lord, you've given us life. You've given us breath. And, and even more than that, you've given us your son to make us clean, to give us entrance into your presence. Lord, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with the blood of your precious son, Jesus Christ, we are redeemed, we are washed clean. We can come before you. Nothing that we can do, Lord, but only what Christ has done. Lord, I pray for those here this morning who may not know Christ, open their eyes to their need, for the fact that they are sinners lost. They are unredeemed, that they are headed to hell. But remind them, Lord, that there is forgiveness in Jesus. There is righteousness in Jesus through confessing our sin, through putting our faith and trust in him and living for you. And for those of us who know Christ, Lord, help us each day to put off the old man, to renew our thinking, to put on Christ-likeness, that we might live to the praise of your glorious grace. I pray in your son's name. Amen. If you found your way there. I'm going to read our whole passage and review a little bit before we jump into our third point here on the message, Sign of the Times. So I'll start reading in verse 1, chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, You see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. When they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. 
and brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as not has been from the beginning of creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. <clears throat> As we come to this passage here in Mark again, remember the setting, the context. As we've worked our way through Mark, it's helpful this is why expositional preaching, I think, is so important as you work through a book or a, uh, a narrative in Scripture because Mark has been developing his arguments throughout the course of 12 chapters, all the way back into the beginning of his gospel when he proclaims Jesus as coming, preaching the gospel of the, the kingdom of God and how Jesus is a servant. He has come to, to serve to seek and to save the lost in Mark 10, 45, that he's come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the suffering servant king. And really, since Mark 8, when the disciples ask him about what it means to follow him, and Jesus says these words that I think most of us know, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. He's really been discussing and uh, hearkening back to that point of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a disciple. And he has many different nuanced discussions and uh, implications for what it means to be a disciple. And as we come to this passage, Jesus just got done speaking against the religious leaders in the temple in Mark 11 and Mark 12. And they should be the, the best disciples, <laughs> They have all the resources. They have all the upbringing. They have everything that they would need to be a great follower of Jesus, of looking for the Messiah and seeing him when he arrives, uh, arrives on the scene. But they don't, right? They are concerned with money and power and position and keeping their own little kingdom. And Jesus comes into the temple and he speaks against uh, the way that they uh, treat the everyday Israelite, how they have failed them, how they misread scripture or deny it altogether and they seek to trap Jesus rather than being somebody who is a faithful follower of God looking for the Messiah, they are caught up in themselves in their own little kingdom and Jesus completely undercuts that. And really, the end of chapter 12 gives this contrast between the faithful widow and her sacrificial living, which is the call of a disciple, and the scribes who love to live for themselves, all about self-promotion, 
And that's really the basis of being a disciple of Jesus. Are you going to promote yourself or are you going to live sacrificially? And now we come to chapter 13. And as they make their way out of the temple, this is connected to what has just happened. Because one disciple said in verses 1 and 2, we don't know who, I think out of the mercy of God. <laughs> Mark doesn't record that for us. Jesus, look at this amazing temple. This is awesome. We've made it. The pinnacle. Here we go. But yet, Jesus says, no, not one single stone will stand. It's going to be completely destroyed. Well, that really takes the wind out of that disciple's sail. <laughs> oh, okay. What's the point then? What do we put our hope in? We don't put our hope in things. That was our, our first point. We don't put our, our hope in things because those things are not what's going to deliver us. Our hope isn't founded in, in the temple or in other things that we can construct, even a church building. But our hope should be in Christ. And Jesus goes on and he explains because several of the disciples ask him, tell us, when is this going to happen? When is the temple going to be destroyed? And when are you going to return? They ask two questions. When is all this going to take place? They want to know. And that's our big idea that is the same as last week for this, this passage is, is this, is that amidst this coming destruction of the temple, which Jesus has foretold, and the return of Christ, this end of the age, what is important for a follower of Jesus? It is important for us that we would be faithful disciples on guard against being led astray. We are called as faithful disciples of Christ to be on guard against being led astray. We're not to be led astray by putting our hope in things. That's the idea in verses one and two in the hope in the temple. And, and the second point was we are not to put our hope or we need, to, uh, we need to beware of the coming difficulties. Beware of hope in the wrong things. Beware of coming difficulties. And, and Jesus rehearses these things in verses 3 through 13. We read through them. We looked at them last week. There's a lot of terrible things that Jesus recounts. Wars, rumors of wars, natural catastrophes, persecution, arrests, even betraying people to death who are family members. But what does Jesus say? He says, these things, these things aren't specifically tied to my return. These are things that are a result of sin. This, is, this has been happening for ages. So don't be led astray when you see these things happening. Don't be led astray by wars or rumors of wars, for these do not give away the end. Verse 7, this must take place, but the end is not yet. He's talking about how nations will rise against nation because of, of sin and human relationships. Things are going to be hard and difficult. And he says, be on your guard in verse 9. Be on your guard. In verse 5, he says, see that no one leads you astray. Be on your guard. We must beware of coming difficulties. Jesus is more concerned that the disciples are prepared in their minds and in their actions, rather than trying to figure out the timeline of when everything's going to happen. He gives some hints to some things, and we're going to talk about that this morning. But he's reminding his disciples, if you truly are somebody who has taken up your cross, who's denying self and following after me, 
you are going to beware and be on guard against false teachers, false messiahs. You're not going to be swept away in hysteria and think that the world is ending behind every bush. (laughs) But the call is to be faithful, to persevere, to be a faithful disciple in the midst of whatever happens in life. This is what he's calling them to. He says, be a faithful disciple. I, <laughs> I opened a message last week talking about um, my ministry as a youth pastor several years ago and teenagers always wanting to know what's gonna happen next. If we're on a trip or on a mission trip, what's next, Pastor Greg? What's next? What are we gonna do? That happened yesterday with my son. <laughs> it was 7.45 in the morning. Hey, Dad, what are we going to do today? Uh, well, we're going to get up and eat breakfast. How about we do that? Okay, then what? Oh, we might do this. Well, then what? Dad, I want to do something exciting. Dad, I want to do this. Can we do this? What's next? What's next? What's next? It's like, just leave me alone. <laughs> you parents never say anything like that ever, do you, right? <laughs> but it was so, so funny because uh, I said, okay, we're going to do this. And before he, that even finished coming out of my mouth, he was ready to say, and then what? And then what? I said, I don't know. We'll see what happens. And then something happened he wasn't ready for. We got to ride in the combine with Mr. Steve yesterday. But that idea of always wanting to know of what's next and what's coming and, and, and to have the ability that, that we feel we know what's happening. And sometimes that's, that's an issue of, of trust, that we don't trust maybe the person in charge, and so we want to know. Maybe it's, it's something for our ease or comfort, is that we feel uneasy unless we know exactly what's going to happen. And some of you are like that. It's how God has wired you. And it's, it's important that we don't let uh, that become a hindrance or say, I'm not going to do something because I don't know everything that might happen. And that's, in a sense, what Jesus is saying here to his disciples is, look, things are going to be hard and things are going to be difficult and, and I'm going to give you some structure uh, of what some things might happen, but amidst it all, you need to be faithful to me and to trust me and to live for me each day. To beware of not putting your hope in things. To beware of coming difficulties. And then we come to verse 14 and he says, beware of coming enemies. So he's he moves from the generalities now to something more specific. <clears throat> Beware of coming enemies. This is where Jesus does give some event, some hint to how things are going to play out. He says in verse 14, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, that's a narrative uh, device used by Mark. Jesus more than likely, did not say, let the reader understand. Mark edits that in his recounting, in his writing, to to kind of bring emphasis here. Let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So what is happening here? Well, Jesus has been describing these difficulties that are happening now and will continue to happen. But here, he gives a hint. And remember the two questions that the disciples asked. When... Will the temple be destroyed? And when will be the coming of the Son of Man? So Jesus doesn't really necessarily give any hint to the temple, but the fact that things are going to get worse. And we understand from history that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD as Rome came in and and sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And still to this day, 
it's destroyed. But now we have a hint to the answer to the second question of when will be the coming of the Son of Man and why, why in my, as I read this, um, I've come to the conclusion that this section is different than what applies to before and that this isn't before the coming of the temple because there's a huge discussion that asks, well, did the abomination of desolation already happen with the destruction of the temple? And I, as I look at this passage and read this, would say no. And this is why. Because if you look at verse 19, it says this. For in those days, there will be such tribulation. So he's talking about when the abomination of desolation, we'll talk about what that mean, means, happens. Uh, there'll be such tribulation has not been from the beginning of creation that God has created until now and never will be. So Jesus gives us a hint that the destruction that accompanies this abomination of desolation, this act is so great that nothing like it has ever happened before. So the destruction of the temple was bad, but we've seen cities burned to the ground. We've seen buildings destroyed. It was terrible, yes, but it has not been something that has never been like it ever again. And we'll see some more ideas of that. So what does that mean? Is that these coming enemies are still coming. This is still future. This is still going to be happening in the future. So he says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So this phrase, the abomination of desolation, it's kind of a tongue twister. You're probably going to lose all meaning of it in your mind because I'm going to say it enough in the next few minutes, right? But this is a phrase from Daniel. Daniel, the prophet in the Old Testament, and he uses this phrase uh, use this phrase three times in Daniel 9, in Daniel 11, and Daniel 12. And this phrase, the abomination of desolation, it means an action, the abomination, that causes complete destruction or desolation. So the abomination, this action that causes destruction or, or leads to destruction. And it's an event or an action that brings great turmoil or upheaval. And as you read Daniel, and as you seek to understand Daniel's use of this phrase, uh, the phrase that he uses in Daniel 9 and Daniel 11 has already come to pass. This abomination of desolation has come to pass when the Seleucid ruler of Antiochus Epiphanes, it's a great name, <laughs> uh, sat on the temple or sat in the temple in 167 B.C., and what did he do? He took a pig and slaughtered and sacrificed a pig on the altar in 167 BC. Now, if you're familiar with the, uh, the Jewish law, the law of Moses, pigs were unclean animals. And so to offer one on the altar in the temple is a great act of rebellion, of, of heresy, of sin. And so we see how there's already, in a sense, one fulfillment of that in this man. But yet in Daniel 12, we see how it seems to point to a coming abomination of desolation where this will happen again. And we read of that here in Mark 13. And that's why Jesus uh, speaks of this. And while Mark adds that, let the reader understand, is many people would have believed that already to have taken place. In one sense, yes, it has. But in another sense, it will happen again. And we see that it's a person. Verse 14, when you see this abomination of desolation standing 
where he ought not to be. Jesus implies that this action, this activity refers to a person. That it's going to be a person who is this abomination of desolation. And so who is it? Well, we read this passage and the coming difficulties and the phrase, this tribulation, it points to the future. And it points to what we read from 2 Thessalonians 2, this man of lawlessness who sets himself up as God. And that's what the Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, is going to do. He's going to enter the temple and he's going to say, I am God. That's perhaps the greatest affront to God. And it really, it's what all of our pride does. It says, I want to be God, not you, God. And so Jesus gives a description here that when they see this, when they see this individual doing this, what is to happen? They are to flee. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who, excuse me, who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. The idea is when this is happening, it's going to be a time of extreme danger and you don't have time to turn back. It's the idea the house is on fire. Don't run back in for your favorite pillow or blanket <laughs> or your favorite picture or whatever it is. The idea is to flee, to get away because destruction is going to accompany this. To get out. Even if you're on the housetop, don't enter back into the house, but just run. If you're in the fields, run. And the descriptor of the difficulties in verse 17, and alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, it will be hard. It will be difficult. And when you're caring for another in that sense, it's one more burden that you're going to have to, to try and, and, and oversee while you're seeking to flee this coming destruction. Jesus says, pray that it may not happen in winter. Why? Because winter will be difficult. To flee outside in winter, it's, it's cold. Even in Israel, in that time, it would be cold out in the wilderness. Jesus says, flee, run. Do not turn back when you see this happening. When this enemy comes, why? Verse 19, in those days, there'll be such tribulation that has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. <clears throat> he gives a hint of what's going to be happening, of what's going to accompany this. And it's going to be tribulation, trial, destruction, upheaval that has not been from the beginning of creation. There's, not, there's no comparison to this, that when this Antichrist, this abomination comes and proclaims himself God, this man of lawlessness, the destruction that's going to follow from him. And also we know from God as he pours out judgments on the earth that it's going to be awful, awful. So much so, Jesus says that in verse 20, if the Lord had not cut short the days, then no human being would be saved. This is the idea of make it through, be delivered, survive. The destruction will be so intense that if God had not said, okay, and we're done, nobody would survive. Nobody would survive. If you've read Revelation and the different judgments and the different things poured out by God, by him himself or through his enemies, the destruction during the end times is going to be so severe 
A third died. A fourth died. A third died. The waters, fish, animals, things dying, the, the, the things uh, um, falling from the sky and, and, and great catastrophes. We'll read more of that next week. But what Jesus does here is he just gives a hint, just a taste to his disciples. And he says, listen, before I come back, the great enemy is going to set himself up as the abomination of desolation, this one who brings destruction. And great destruction is going to come along with him. And you know what? If God didn't say that's enough, nobody would survive. Nobody would survive. But we see the reason why. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. As we fit all of scripture together, and as we seek to understand it in its plain meaning, uh, what is Jesus talking about here? Or we understand that this time period that Jesus is talking about here is known as the, the tribulation. So this is the time after the church has been raptured, <clears throat> before Jesus comes back and sets up his millennial kingdom, and you have the Antichrist ruling, in a sense, ruling and reigning on the earth. And so there would be no uh, church-age believers on the earth. But people will still be saved through the witness of different things in the tribulation. And they would be elect, God's chosen. That term elect uh, does not refer to you know, an election coming up like, hey, we all vote for Steve to be saved. Um, it's, it's not nothing like that. It's the idea that God has chosen people before the, the foundations of the earth in eternity past. In his sovereign plan, he has, he has chosen people to be saved. And he says, even during the tribulation, for those, he shortened the days. The idea that he is limiting the destruction. He's the one who's ultimately in control. And he's doing it for the sake of those whom he chose, who he, is, he saved, he shortened the days. Verse 21. And if then, or then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. Because even in the midst of all this upheaval, people will say, well, look, here's Jesus. No, no, there he is. No, I'm Jesus. I'm the Messiah. <laughs> No, Jesus says, do not believe it. Verse 22, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders. In 2 Thessalonians 2, we read of this man of lawlessness who does all kinds of, of signs, right? He tries to, in a sense, imitate God and to sway people. And, and Jesus says, no, be on your guard. Look out for these false Christs and false prophets. And they do this to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Jesus isn't saying, well, if they have a really good, you know, <laughs> magic trick, then they can lead true believers astray. No, what he's saying is that they're going to try to, but it's not possible. It's not possible for them to, to sway a truly born-again person, but they're going to try. They want to capture people and lead them astray. Jesus wraps up in verse 23, says, but be on guard. And that's what ties back in to verse nine, that same phrase, but be on guard. I've told you all these things beforehand. So Jesus is speaking that these things will be happening. There's a lot of minutia and a lot more that we could dive into in different passages of scripture in regard to this. But I think that last phrase of Jesus is where we need to focus. We need to be on guard. 
We need to be on guard and aware of the teaching that's happening around us through false teachers and false prophets in the world vying for our attention, wanting us to be swayed. Jesus says, no, be on your guard. But then we must also be on guard ourselves, preparing, looking, waiting for the return of Christ. One author said this, common themes that run through this passage are the need for spiritual diligence. Be on guard. Look out, right? Warnings against false teachers. There are many who will say that they are from God and they are not from God. And he warns of the danger of eschatological fervor, the idea that every time we hear of another country going to war to another country, that this means Jesus is coming back in 10 days. <laughs> no. <laughs> we need to beware that we do not let this, this end times fervor distract us that it becomes hysteria, that we neglect the things that we are supposed to pursue right now. And it's also a reminder for us of the reality of persecution, that things will be difficult. We need to remember where we are in the plan of God. We're living between Christ's first advent, which we're going to celebrate in a few weeks here with Christmas, and then his second advent, his, his return. We're looking forward to that. We must be on guard, as he says, against false teachers and prophets, which are still out there. You read of people being led astray all the time and different cults and, and ways of thinking popping up. We need to be on guard. And another thing we need to learn from this passage is the danger of end times speculation, right? We love to claim, well, we read God's word and we seek to draw out the meaning. And yet sometimes when it comes to end times things and prophecy, we try and read the newspaper back into the Bible. <laughs> we try and say, oh, it says this, but how can I make this fit in here? When that's not what we should be doing, but rather letting Scripture speak and being uh, aware and being vigilant and trusting God and His timing. When we read God's Word, we seek to draw out the meaning of a text, not impose our ideas on it, but let it speak for itself. And I love what one author said, even in a passage like this, full of eschatological images, the message is not to try and calculate the end, but always to be alert and ready, living a life of spiritual preparation. And that is key. Amidst the coming destruction, the coming enemies, we need to be on our guards as faithful disciples of Christ, living for him. Not being swayed by the world, by false teaching, but keeping our eyes up. And as we keep our eyes up, we keep our hands at work, seeking to share the gospel, live lives of holiness, preparing ourselves for the day when Christ does come back. And we would rejoice in that. Again and again, we read in the New Testament, <coughs> excuse me, how persecution will come. Suffering is part of the life of the believer. Beware of false teaching. And understand that as the end comes, there will be clear and distinct signs that you will not miss. But in the end, we need to continue to trust that God will win. There is no doubt. He will. We are to trust him. To prepare ourselves by immersing ourselves in scripture. Seeking to put off sin. To put on Christ's likeness. To sharing the gospel. We need to be on guard. We need to be faithful. We need to not be led astray. 
And may we be ready that when Christ returns and we stand before him, we would hear the phrase, well done, a good and faithful servant. Well done that you did not get caught up in hysteria. Well done that you did not get led astray by a false teacher, but well done that you are faithful and looking for my return in preparing yourself and proclaiming the gospel to the world around you. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to look at your word. And Lord, there are many things that we would love to know more about, but yet your word doesn't make clear to us in all the detail. Lord, may we leave that to you. May we trust you and may we know and do the things that are very clear to fight sin, to prepare our hearts to live lives of holiness, proclaiming Christ and looking forward to his return. As it says in 1 John, that all those who wait for his appearing will, will purify themselves, will prepare. May we be doing that. May we proclaim the wonderful goodness of Jesus Christ to the world around us as we do. We pray in his name. Amen.